Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Uh, my guest today is Kirsten DeWest. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. In a few months in the planning, we could even maybe say years. Years. Um, we first connected on, I mean, this is like when you were doing those events at Butler Shine, like back, back, back in the day. Yeah. Um, you are the Chief Marketing Officer of Alpha Foods. Yeah, correct. correct. Just give, just give us like a quick headline of what Alpha Foods is just to get people set around it? Sure. Uh, Alpha is a plant-based food brand, I suppose, in terms of thinking about it within the category that it lives. Um, we're about six years old, primarily distributed in the U.S., um, rolling out in Canada and in a few other countries as well. Um, I think that um, you know we are a brand that is about really wanting to invite the maximum number of people into the category by offering, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner solutions, snacks, non-trace solutions, but really kind of approaching the category with a, you know, radically inviting welcome to all and no finger wagging if you're not at someone's, you know, one place in the plant-based journey or another. Cool. So um, let's kick off. Why don't you take us through your um, your journey? You can start as early as you want. <laughs> Well, let's see. So I, uh, you know, I started as um, a planner in New York um, in the 90s. So that's, I mean, actually, before I went into advertising, I moved to New York to work in the fashion industry and publishing, and I really didn't like it. Um, Where was your first job? Oh, I worked at um, Sportswear International and in fashion, like little, like small, little, like you know, right, like junior kind of things. Yeah. But just that industry, as I got into it, I was going to um, FIT. I transferred from um, school in Montreal down to FIT. And, um, you know, that was like the pipeline into the fashion business, right? That school. And I just didn't like it. And my professor said to me, oh, why don't you be a copywriter? And I, I actually didn't even know what a copywriter was. <laughs> and, um, you know, one thing led to another and I started exploring the industry and I ended up joining DDB in the uh, account planning department. And when I had spoken to somebody about, you know, hey, this, uh, this looks really cool. Do you need an internship? And they're like, yeah, send us your resume. My resume was like, you know, taught English in the suburbs of Paris, bartender, waitress, you know, worked at a, in retail, um, and, you know, it made sense when it landed in the planning department because, you know, you really want um, a planning department that's made up of people who have different perspectives and different experiences. And so I had this kind of crazy, very background, but very junior. And so I landed in planning and I fell in love with it. I just loved it. Do you remember who your boss was, who was running? Yeah, Abby Hirshhorn. Okay, Abby, yeah. Yeah, Abby's the best. I'm still, she's still a very good friend of mine. She was an incredible mentor, incredible supporter. Um, she worked for Damien um, O'Malley at the time. Um, so I worked for Abby and yeah, she was just a really, I was very fortunate to get kind of thrown in the mix of a pitch for Evian actually. You know, I was like this peon 
junior intern working with like the senior creative director, the senior account lead, the senior planners. Um, and I just had a great time doing it. I think I remember uh, proposing that Evian position itself to um, the rave community because everybody was thirsty. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't take that suggestion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Damien was running the department or he was like the, or is he the global head of strategy or something like that? Yeah, he was like the global head of strategy. Abby run the department. And, you know, from there, I just fell in love with the discipline, right? It was like, I get paid to be curious. And um, I had always been really passionate about kind of culture and the impact of culture on the world and business. And so I landed in this in this department, but had a really interesting trifecta in my portfolio as I kind of, you know, grew with DDB originally of like packaged goods. So CPG, um, youth culture and tech. So that was kind of the, those were the three kinds of brands that I tended to work on in my career there. Um, and I, I just loved it. I started meeting a lot of people in the industry. Um, I love the combination of things I now know as right and left brain thinking, but at the time I didn't know, right. What, what, really what that was all about. Um, but bringing in that kind of cultural perspective um, and bringing it into the agency was something that I love to help kind of, you know, support strategy development and communications planning and working with clients. And I stayed in that world for a really, you know, gosh, most of the 90s, I guess, like, you know, mid to late 90s, um, like 94 to the end of the 90s. And then I ended up going client side because like many people who work in advertising, I had the very unoriginal crisis of conscience, which is like, what am I selling? Because at the end of the day, it's a really sexy and fun business, but you're also pushing product, right? So I was like, okay, well, if I'm a pusher, what am I pushing? And I was working on a candy brand um, and launching this new product. And, and I sort of said, hey, what, is, what happens if this is really, really successful? which of course I wanted it to be. And, you know, you have that automatic trigger that goes and it's like, oh, well, you know, sales go through the roof and clients happy and agencies happy and I get promoted and I'm on my way. And then this other little thought bubble popped out of my head and it said, oh, and you contribute to childhood onset diabetes, obesity, hyperactivity, ADD. And, and I couldn't was, like- was this, was, that this, was this something that was- was there a cathartic moment where this sort of came to a, a head or was it sort of a, a dripping? All no, the no, no, literally I was mid focus group in Long Island getting the insights to launch a new candy product. And it was just kind of this like thought occurred to me, like literally while I was in doing the research and I had always in my life, like I'm a, a kid, I, you know, I started the environment club in high school and, you know, worked at Greenpeace when I lived in Paris and, but I'd always kept that side of my life separate and not brought it into work. And I said to myself at that time, I need to figure out how to put these two passions together, which are basically brand building and better world. And how do I do that? And I literally had no idea how to do that. And so I said, well, maybe if I go client side, I'll have more um, opportunity to have impact, right? you know, that if I'm out of just the advertising, but I'm going into the business. So I moved into tech and that was of course, you know, like early 2000s and sort of crazy dot-com boom time. And I would say, you know, the job was really great. It was really interesting. Did I succeed in like bringing those two things together? No, I did not. Um, 
but I learned a lot and I learned a lot about kind of getting into the business and, you know, just a portion of my job when I went and worked um, at about.com was advertising. There was a lot of other things I had to think about as well. And so I had sort of failed in my goal to bring together this better brand and better world passion. So I was like, well, now what do I do? And I just kind of apply my planner, you know, mind to looking at the problem and what was happening culturally. And as I was freelancing, you know, whether it was like working for JWT or whatever, just doing a bunch of freelance, I think Darcy at the time, DMBNB or whatever it was called, like Kirshenbaum, like whatever the agencies that were around, um, I kind of paid the bills that way. And then I did a lot of research on sort of to understand kind of the state of the world because this was the time of really the beginning of those shifting consumer and human values and how people were relating to brands. You know, this was like the Enron time, right? That was sort of one of the big first stories. And so I was like holding salons in my apartment and doing little quant studies, (laughs) like just use, you know, sending things out to people and, that I knew. And you have a, did you have a, did you have a receptive audience? Or was it, was yeah. It a-, a really receptive audience. Actually, yeah. people were really wanting to get into the dialogue, which was very interesting, which who is why were, I say it was people. Who were the people who wanted the dialogue? How would you, you know, I would say it was people who were, you know, just kind of more kind of culture creators, you know, like urban, you know, people in art, design, fashion, business, music, really people that were in my network, right? And then they would bring people in and we'd have these sort of focus groups, really salon discussions um, around, you know, what was happening and values and their relationship with brands. And anyway, I did that research for, you know, six to 12 months, you know, secondary, all, all of the things that you would do as a planner. And the result of that was a white paper that I wrote called Integrity, the New Brand Currency That Can't Be Bought or Spun, and I ended up presenting at the United Nations Environmental Program event in Berlin. And, you know, basically what that outlined is in many ways what's kind of come to pass is like the big guys are only going to shift when they are having their market share stolen by the little ankle biters and integrity brands are going to be the ones that drive the future. Um, and so I said, OK, I'm going to start an agency that is there to support integrity brands and grow them. And, you know, at that time, that was like 2003, not a lot of people were spending money on purpose, (laughs) right. Or sustainability or whatever the buzzword was. And so, you know, I really quickly pivoted the business to be around insights and strategy. So really a brand consultancy, because that's where we found the appetite was, there really was no body of insights. And, you know, I know, you know, back in the day, you and I used to talk about that, right? Like that, you know, the kind of insights that were needed and multi-methodology, you know, deep analytics, as well as kind of qualitative and forecasting. And so we ended up working, um, you know, the name of the agency was called CI, which actually came from the insights, right? From the salons, these people were highly conscientious, but really truly the innovators. So I named my company like the worst name ever, which is like the longest name in the universe. And can you imagine having a URL that was conscientiousinnovation.com? Yes, I made that decision. (laughs) You learned nothing from working on the internet. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I did that and, you know, it was really interesting. I feel really proud of the work we did. We helped a lot of, you know, brands kind of understand, iconic brands understand this, what we would refer to as the cultural shift to sustainability 
you know, um, looking at that holistically, like my sustainable life, whether it's environmental, personal, spiritual, or social sustainability. Um, and so that's, you know, what, what I did for 15 years, we worked with like Nike in the early days of them developing, you know, their positioning around that Miller Coors, um, Nestle, you know, Rainforest Alliance. So like a lot of, a range of a lot of brands and that finally kind of helped me fill that better brand, better world kind of goal. And I did that and Lululemon, uh, reached out to me. Um, and it was funny because, I was about to turn the shift report, which you'll remember from back in the day, that research and analytics tool into a SaaS tool because scalability was always the challenge. It was always like, oh, they're the, oh, you have to be in the room and you and your yeah, team. You and a subscription not- model like everyone talks about now, right? Yeah, right. So hmm. I was like, okay, we've got to turn this into something way more scalable. And so we were, I was actually raising money to turn it into a SaaS model. I had an advisor um, who was helping me build the modeling, who was one of the first investors in Vision Critical. And we were on this path to build it out into a SaaS tool because we had this amazing body of analytics that nobody had. And, but it was like scalability, right? It was like, I, you know, I was literally, sometimes I'd be out there presenting to clients. Other days I'd be like sitting with my team. We're all trying to learn Tableau analytics because like everybody had, to, you know, we're like, you know, 15 people, right? It wasn't a huge organization, but we were working on pretty senior level brands. Um, and I got a text from um, a buddy of mine, Spencer Bame. I don't know if you know Spencer, who is also a planner. He, was a, he and I were like baby planners back in the day. And he said, you know, do you want to meet CMO of Lululemon? And I, I said to my advisor, I said, do we still need to be doing this fee for service stuff? You know, as we launched the SaaS model. And she's like, yes, because, you know, we have these revenue targets we have to hit and so I said, yes, I'd love to meet the CMO of Lululemon. So I've really met Lululemon as a prospect. Um, and they just sort of pitched me hard on taking a role. And much like when I started the agency, people were like, Kirsten, you're crazy. You're doing so well in your advertising career. Why would you, nobody's going to give a shit about this. Why would you go do that? Um, and when I decided to join Lululemon, and the reason I did is because there are very few brands that have purpose and profit at a founding DNA level and have that scale. So that's one kind of organization. Another challenge is when you have a big ship that's trying to slightly shift the rudder, right, to impact better world. So I found that challenge really exciting. And, you know, again, people are like, Kirsten, you're crazy. You have all these great clients. Why would you do this? And blah, blah, blah. But that has never been my, you know, my, my North star has never been like what one should do or like, you know, rise a certain way. So I made that shift. Um, and now I'm at alpha foods. So how long were you at Lululemon for? About three years. Okay. So, um, it kind of, it's kind of like a, a, a curved trajectory. It's not like yeah. you started off in planning, you went client side, then you kind of went back to planning for a long time in your kind own yeah. in your own in your own way. I mean you were you had your company was really all about the consumer and about insights and about helping brands navigate through that. Yep. And then you came back client side where yep. you've been for a bit. So taking taking your um planner hat and thinking about your chief marketer hat what advantages do you think having had a background as a planner brings 
to someone who's running marketing? You know, I think there's benefits that, you know, there's some skills that that planner background brings. What I would offer, though, is that equally those skills um, as an entrepreneur have, have brought to the role. So I'm somebody who is, you know, equally comfortable in a big global environment because I cut my teeth in global brand, bringing an entrepreneurial mindset. I know that's something people talk about a lot, but actually being an entrepreneur and having to go through, it's a hard job. It is not easy, right? It's fun, it's exciting, but it's hard. And there's a lot you do around that. Um, those, I think, are the two things that I would say equally have combined um, and added, a, you know, help me in my role as a marketing executive. You know, from the planner perspective, a big part of that job is about listening and being curious. And ultimately, if you can take that skill set of being listening, listening and being curious, and apply that to not just the consumer, which is what that planner role is very focused on, but to the business, right? And what's happening and your cross-functional partners, because really, whether you're an agency or you're a marketing executive, you're in service. You're in the service business, right? Like as a marketing executive, I am in service to the business. Like brand strategy and marketing strategy, it serves the business. It, it doesn't go the other way. What so really mean, that idea of by, service. What do you mean by service? What's, how do you interpret serves the business? Well, you know, the business strategy is what is defined first and the business goals. And the brand strategy has to be in service to delivering on those goals. The opposite isn't true. And so one of the things about coming from agency and planner, you, you work on so many kinds of brands. You work with a lot of different kinds of people, um, which is a great benefit and skill set. And you're, it's really curiosity. And then, you know, the, the thinking you do and the analysis we do with that, what you find from that curiosity, looking at a lot of different kinds of information is very valuable when you go inside because you want to be curious about your cross-functional partners. How can I, as a marketing executive, support my, my, my head of sales, right? Like that's, that's, that's our job, right? To do that. How do we support our head of product to make sure product is an expression of the brand? How do we take what they are best in the world at and make, and their thinking and bring that into the brand strategy development work because they have different perspectives that we need to consider in that work. We don't want to do it in a silo. So I guess that combination of working with a lot of different kinds of people, but truly curiosity um, and bringing that into the role, I think are critical. And then the entrepreneurship side of things is, you know, I'm at a small organization now, right? Quickly growing high growth brand, really exciting sector. Um, you know, but not everybody can go from like the comforts of a big global brand with the infrastructure and like get scrappy. It sounds super fun, right? Like I want to go to a high growth brand, whether it was tech at the time or, you know, plant-based now or something else. Um, but the ability um, that comes from, you know, 15 years of an entrepreneur of just being scrappy and, you know, low ego, you just have to get shit done. Um, I think those two things have helped me a lot. I'm going to go, I'm going to come back to this because I'm going to ask, ask a little, another question about planning. Um, but I'm going to go back to Lululemon for a second. Sure. I missed the opportunity. Um, 
a massively successful brand that sort of defied the odds in so many ways. Like this, this was supposed to be a closed category that Nike, Adidas had sewn up to themselves, and no one else was sort of getting in. Mm-hmm. What, what what do you think Lululemon did that 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 made them so successful? What what was it that they understood about people or understood about their audience that the others just didn't get and couldn't couldn't catch Lululemon? I, I think it it was a couple of things. Now, when I joined Lululemon, it was it was kind of on that cusp, right? Um, it was we were it was still very successful. It was like 1.7 billion when I joined. It was just over four when I left. And so it was, it was just on the rise, um, but it hadn't, you know, we, you know, at the beginning, it, it was just starting to break through right into, into the, the big, big masses. And, and now, I mean, it's, 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 it's a great brand. What I think Lululemon um, got really well um, is its focus on the whole human. You know, Nike is and Adi and all those other brands. And I've never been inside those organizations. I've met people who have, and, you know, they produce amazing people and amazing work and, and that, but, you know, Lululemon sort of focus on the whole human and, you know, Chip Wilson, whatever one may think about him. And I never met him personally. I never worked with him. Um, He said, you know, this is a people development company. We just happen to sell pants. And so the focus on development of the human beings that built Lululemon and continue to build it. That's a big part of the organization that I think has made it successful. And that also translated outside of the organization into its real, its focus on community, right? True authentic connection. And I go back to CI and the shift report and the, the research and data that we were doing and gathering. And of all of the things we, we would ask you, we did that quant study. I don't know if you remember, like every 18 months, we do the big North American quant study. And I was like, you know, please read the importance of the following. You know, they were basically sustainability issues, mm. if you will, right? Either social, personal, spiritual, or environmental. Mm. And feeling connected with my friends, family, and community every year was number one. Environmental, all these other things, they were they were there, but they were not in the top. And I remember somebody in some qualitative said to us once, you know, how can we help save the environment if we can't save ourselves? Yeah. And Lululemon has just done an incredible job of like building com- authentic communities out, out in the world. Um, and they were the first to do that. And now that's the thing everywhere, you know, Glossier, Peloton, et cetera. Um, but Lululemon really took that focus on the whole human and its support of its people and brought that into the community space so that people could connect with it as a brand. And so I think that's what makes it different and unique. I guess the, the the this being able to sustain that as you grow is the, you know, when you're a scrappy, yep, company, the grassroots, you have kind of, you can you can get a lot of you can win a lot of people over because you're not the other guys. Yeah. Then when when you become the other guy, yeah, it's the thing called outdoor voices or whatever. It just becomes like yeah. Hard. Yeah, I mean, Lululemon was the ankle biter, right? That like, yeah. you know, the big brands put on their wall and and now it's, now it's you know, it's a, a serious player. Yeah. Um, so so going back to the, the planner, the planner versus the marketer or planner and the marketer, um, what surprised you when you first moved client side that you, you know, like, oh, wow, I, I got to get my A game together because 
when you when you started client side you hadn't got the entrepreneurial experience you, yeah you, what, what were the surprises if you remember back then I do. I do remember. It was a, you know, I'd say there were two and it was just a really crazy time. It was like, for whatever reason, I found myself whenever I've gone client side in these like high growth sectors, right? So it was tech and then it was like athleisure and now it's plant-based. So there's an energy that comes with that high growth sector that is, you know, is a little intense. And um, it is also a place and a space where what I learned pretty quickly in my first client side role is like it's advertising is like one piece of it. <laughs> it's a, t- it's a, it's an important piece of it, but it's one piece of it. And the importance of really focusing as you and I were talking about earlier on like the business, right? Like how am I supporting the business? And as an agency, of course you get your goals, right? Brief from the client. Like we want to increase revenue by X or we want to increase our equity by X or like our share of category by X or drive number of like, so there are, it's not that there aren't goals, but when you go client side, really understanding how all of the departments are working together to meet those common goals. Um, so the level of teamwork is teamwork's teamwork on one level, but when you're in the agency side, you're working with people who are like, they kind of think like you, right? They act like you, they, you know, it's like creative, strategic, fun, right? When you're going client side, you're working with your head of IT, your head of supply chain, your head of operations, your head of product development. And so being in relationship with people that, you know, have a different worldview than you um, was something that, you know, you got to do, I I found I've got to do that really quickly. So I got to apply that curiosity to this new world and this new, these new worldviews that I don't really have a lot of experience with yet was something that was clear to me when I first went client side. And then just that broader connection to the business and, and, and getting out of the, like, really, you know, that broader connection to the business means you need to understand as we we're talking about earlier, because I know another guest of yours said like the numbers of the business versus just like the kind of the ethereal, like we've got some great qualitative and we think that, you know, and I'm not saying that isn't valuable because you get a lot of richness in that, but like the validation of like why what we're doing is going to be impactful and its impact on the business and by when is critical. And that's something I had to get my A game together on quickly. Yeah. No, I mean, and I, and I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think agencies generalizing a great deal, but I think agencies have, they don't know really how their clients to make money. I don't think I, in the, I mean, I, I once did a, um, I worked on Powerade. It was one of my, <laughs> was one of my first clients when I came to the United States and I, I, and I worked on the global business and we was, we were, you know, as a team, as an agency client team, we were sort of always frustrated that we were never kind of getting the traction. And um, for some reason we had a workshop and we hired someone who'd like a year before had worked at Gatorade. Yeah. To be our moderator. And um, it was a very sort of cathartic session. And someone said, 
you've got to understand the mechanics of, and the fundamentals of this business. And it's all yeah. about, it's all about numbers. The number you need to know is that it costs someone who is a bottler bottling Coca-Cola or canning it 0.01 of a cent to make a can of Coca-Cola. Yeah. To retool your plant and have a Powerade line is not 0.01 or 0.1 of it. I think it was 0.1 of a cent. Yeah. It's seven cents. So, I mean, that was really just, I was just like, okay, we, we didn't, it didn't take as long to realize why the organization, you know, wasn't supporting this small brand. Yeah. Just the numbers just, if once you got down to understanding profitability, it didn't make sense. Well, I think that's exactly it, Ed. It's like, you know, how I can't remember one conversation that I had when I was on the agency side. Again, it was like a long time ago, so I could be forgetting. But where it was like talking about profitability, talking about contribution margin, talking about, you know, these, you know, these kinds of things, right? It, 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 I think that's critical is, is understanding that um, and being, then you can be a great business partner. Yeah. Now, I think agencies have changed too, right? You know, it was like planning, then it went, was called connection planning, where the planner is more connected to the channels and then, you know, the rise of different elements of marketing. People are thinking more about the business, but that's what makes a great agency partner is ones that are thinking about your business. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to talk about that a little bit that you remember when you were, at DDB and you were working with your clients, it was a different media landscape. Yeah. There weren't as many choices. And it seems to me that today, not only have you got the um, the fact that advertising is a small slice of your overall sense of set of responsibilities, yeah. that small set has got infinitely more complex. Yeah. So it's 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 like do you have influences? Da, 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 all these it's a myriad of questions and decisions yeah. that back in the mid-90s or late 90s, marketers didn't really know about. It wasn't there, that wasn't there yet. Um yeah, and- I mean, I think yes, and it's still answering the same question. Like, oh, sure. right? So I think people have also like we we like keeping it simple. I think has always at least served me and helped me because it could. And and I would say there's a lot I've like you know I've learned right. Like I I've always loved kind of going into things that emerged and learning about them. But you know I have people on my team who are way smarter than I am about some of the more emerging kind of technologies around MarTech or what have you. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely changed. And I think kind of the keeping it simple of like, what do we need to communicate to whom and how, mm-hmm. and like, what are the truths of them, of their experience with the brand and of our brand authentically, that sort of way of thinking still applies. So it's easy with all the complexity to make things overcomplicated, I would say too. Yeah, and I think it's also, I mean, there's also this, I had, it's a podcast I 
recorded it about a week ago um, with somebody who's a, a real social social media focused strategist. And I was talking about the temptation to fill the channels, you know, cheaply with yeah. junk. You know, you're just adding to the noise, but you're getting the numbers back. And it looks like you're getting an ROI. It's almost like fake data. Um, and there's this sort of satisfaction that you're you, you're doing something, but really, really look at it in detail. Yeah, it's, you're not breaking through because you just. And I and I, th I think we've seen this from so many marketers, where especially with this sort of, again, a new concept. I mean, it's an old concept now because it's over a decade old, but uh, relatively new in in someone who's worked in the business for decades. Um, growth hacking, you know. And, and you have these people who have a whole a different mentality about how you go to market. And it's not about um, hiring an ad agency, it's about hacking your way to growth. And um, inevitably these folks run out of runway. They, 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 they hack their way to a plateau and then yeah. they get go, well, how do we, you know, how do we re-engineer this? Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't, it was really interesting. I don't know if you read, um... There was a bunch of news that came out, I don't know, a year and a half or two years ago, you know, because, you know, we've been in this sort of, there's this like upper funnel, lower funnel, yeah. like performance, yeah. brand. Yeah. You know, I mean, ultimately, my point of view is you want to be full funnel. Like, yes, you need upper funnel, particularly a brand that needs awareness, but you want to pull those people down. But the performance in the lower funnel, we kind of was quick, easy to measure, right? Like people loved it. And some news came out, you know, we're now seeing a shift away from that. Right. And I don't know if that's what you're referring to when you say growth hacking, but that's what what I picked up. Um, basically, like, what are you doing to like quickly hack your way to growth, you know, pulling levers and et cetera. And um, Adidas came out like very publicly and said, like, we've actually spent too much on this and it's cost us here. And Airbnb has come out and said, we're now shifting into brand away from performance. So I think to your point, like there's a plateau and there's a limit to that. It's like that short termism. Yeah, no, definitely. Those are the those are the two standout cases of people who have like turned 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 against it. Um, so when you uh, think about um, one of one of the things that interesting is interesting to me right now is getting my head around where people are at. We've been through like an incredible. It's a it's a it's a revel the COVID. Thing is a revolutionary time. I know yeah. instincts tell us that we want to forget it and move on, but it seems that there's a lot that has happened. Yep. And I, and and I wonder how you what you what you thought about how you thought about what that means for people in communication, people in marketing. I, I read something the other day which was, you know, and and I I've seen it like just reading comments. It was a, it was a, uh, the New York Times did a post on Instagram yesterday that was saying how to prepare for the next wave of COVID, which wasn't interesting itself, but the comments were absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. It was like an ethnographic dive into the psyche of America. It was like, I don't believe it. Don't tell me this. Um, wow. You know, just almost like we've had enough, you know, we, yeah. we're at our wit's end. Yeah. Uh, and so 
when we're thinking about marketing, we're trying, we're not marketing to a, a, a normal audience anymore. I mean, this is a, this is a stressed out, hairy, yeah. uh, you know, per, person. Um, so I don't know. I wonder what your thoughts were on. Well, I think you kind of like you nailed it when you just talked about, hey, well, obviously, yes, it's like this revolutionary time. But what I heard in that, too, is like. And and the question is, like, what's the culture in which we're operating as a business? Right. And that I think that's a critical thing is like as brand leaders and marketeers, like we need to understand the culture in which our business is operating and make sure that our brands are reflective of people's values and the lives they want to lead in a way that's authentic. Otherwise it's just like, you know, knee jerk response. Like, you know, I used to joke, it's like knee jerk green, you know, now it's knee jerk community. Now it's like knee jerk, you know, mindfulness or whatever. So it's got to be authentic. And I think, you know, if we look at what's happening in the world now, there's like the two things there's COVID. um, And there's this, you know, we're living in the world of radical extremes right now as well, this polarization that has bled into everything, right? Whether it's politics, you know, red versus blue, whether it's vegan or meat eater, whether it's like... Food food choices are a political act. Right, everything. Like, everything we do is portrayed as a moral choice. Like, it's it's everywhere. And people are exhausted from that. And as that's been happening, we've become disconnected because we're in this pandemic, you know, from ourselves and from each other. And so I think, you know, as marketers, we really need to look at that and think about, I know at Alpha, we're, we're looking at that very closely and saying, okay, we're in this place of like, people are disconnected and polarized, and they're really looking for com- comfort and connection in a divided world. So how do we, where do we fit in that? And what's our role in that? So I don't see that changing anytime soon that seeking for comfort and connection because we're on the heels of a time where we don't have it and we're in this sea of like radical extremes and just polarization where as you said you know whether it's the food we eat or anything we do the exercise we do could be anything is portrayed as like a moral act or an expression of our values and i think people are looking for relief from that yeah i mean i think that's i think that's interesting in terms of what you I mean, I was reading the, the, the I don't know what he what he was, but um, the guy from Chibani who was an ad guy is now at Impossible. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He was an account guy, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's now the CEO of Impossible Foods. And, yeah. And, uh, it, it was just interesting. Um, one of these newsletters wrote an interesting piece about what he does, and um, they couldn't really like. They couldn't really navigate a strategy that was going to work for them because, um, and they, they they were you know what do they know? But I mean they they were sort of saying that uh, they bet so they placed so many bets on tasting like meat that um, they've alienated a ton of people because uh, the, there are people who want the naturalness the true naturalness and in order to get this thing to taste like meat it doesn't have that profile that a lot of a key part of the audience is looking for so i just think from a strategic you know how are we marketing this what are we talking about what is our product 
That yeah. was obviously a challenge. And I noticed when you talked about when you were introducing Alpha Foods, you were talking a lot more about um, what seemed to be sort of, uh, uh, I don't use, use the word loosely, but fun, more of a, 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 a playful, more more being yeah. more playful, being more fun, being more yeah. about uh, enjoyment. Yep. Yeah, I mean, like we're a brand, it's like what's critical for us, and, and this is really in the roots of the brand, right? And kind of our origin story of like, you know, our co-founders are like, a lifelong vegan and an Ernst and Young finance finance executive. You, you kind of couldn't get like those are quite opposites, right? But in that, that bringing people together, like what is part of who we are is just being defiantly welcoming. So again, there's a lot of in the better world category, whether it's food or otherwise, there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of finger wagging, right? If you do this, you're better. If you don't do this, you're bad. And I don't know about you, but last time I checked, nobody likes to be judged. I know I don't. And so it's a zone where there is a lot of judgment and we're saying everybody is welcome. It doesn't matter where you are in your plant-based journey. Like you could be having chicken, you know, nuggets made at McDonald's, like from animal protein on a Monday and you're having a plant-based burrito on a Wednesday and that's okay with us. Um, because we want to bring the maximum number of people into the category. And I think the lack of judgment, we could call it accessibility, which is a big part of who we are as a brand as well. So it's not just where you can find it, you know, mass retailer, but being accessible in terms of how we're showing up and and radically inviting. I noticed um, when I, when I see the, when I see the foods in my local store, uh, they, they kind of look delicious. They sound like the, the recipes just, sound like you want to try them you know yeah. it's almost a conscious you know from from the radical like this thing tastes like a bit of cardboard which is what we sort of grew yeah. up that, that's a traditional notion of plant-based foods right totally yeah probably good for you but they're gonna they're gonna really taste like an old shoe yeah we uh, have um we just launched a um branded content series with monet exchange um who is, uh, you know, like a celebrity drag queen, you know, one RuPaul's Dragway. She's amazing. She's just such a great partner. Um, and, you know, they're talking about the food on the show and about a whole bunch of other things. It's really funny. Um, but people love, whether it's on that show or in the research we've done, people love the taste. Like the product is genuinely very, very good. Because that's that's the thing we have to blow up, right? Is the uh, for the category, and there's there's things we can benefit from the category, um, like the category trailblazings that like the Beyonds and the Impossibles and the Morning Stars have done. Um, I mean, one thing about this category that I'll share is that there's a lot of collaboration. Um, it's really that sense of a rising tide lifts all boats, which is really really cool to be part of. That's cool. Um... Say you're trying to advise someone who's uh, a young strategist who's thinking, maybe I should think about going client side. Now, the thing I guess is client side now is a little different because they are clients are setting up their own agencies. Do you do you have, do you have, do you have in-house capabilities or? Yeah, a little. I mean, we're a small team here, but we're kind of building out a brand design function. We won't build out like an agency internally, like, you know, Chobani did or what have you. Yeah. 
So just say, imagine that someone is a 25, 26 year old strategist who's thinking of going client side, but not to an in-house agency, but more to a marketing function. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they went on and got an MBA or something. Um, what are they, what are the, what are the things they need to, I know we've talked about a little bit of this, but what do you, what, what do you say is critical for them to think about? I mean, quite honestly, I would, the first thing I would say is like, why do you want to go client side? Like, what is, what is your own, what are your own goals? Like, what is your own purpose that that's the right place for you? That would be the first question versus like, I want to go client side because I want more power or like whatever, right? Like I, that, that I think is a critical question. I went client side because I was like looking to like meet a goal that I had the first time I went client side, I did not succeed in meeting that goal. Um, but other times I did. So, you know, I, I think sometimes and I didn't, but that that's it just from a big picture level. Um, the other thing I would just say is, you know, and this is, I really learned from advertising, you know, I, I think of course, within marketing, there's so many different kinds of functions and people, but you can never lose with being curious. Yeah. I think, what, I think what's happening is I, I was going to say, I, I kind of, I came to the, when did you, when were you at DDB? Like 94 to 97. Yeah, because I think it was or something like that. Ninety, yeah. it might have been ninety-six to ninety. I, I don't know, three years in the nineties. It was just before I came to the states, and um, I think I remember Abby because I remember her having a, the most eclectic strategy department, a planning department. She really did. She really yeah, built she a great like team. Novelists. She had a novelist. She had someone who'd sailed around the world. You know, it yeah. was, that was what she, she was had. the first person to bring on a cultural anthropologist into yeah. the department. That's right. Yeah, uh, I remember. I remember who that was as well. I think. Yeah, Dr. Bob. Yeah. Bob Deutsch. Yeah, he's great. Um, so to answer your question, like you can never lose on curiosity. I think that's it. I think you want to be clear about which function you want to go into within marketing because there's so many. Um, and I would also say, you know, when you're going into that interview process or whatever have a point of view. And that's actually agency background and being a planner is really great for that. I was interviewing someone the other day and it was, you know, um, about just asking their point of view on the particular kind of subfunction within and sort of how they would tackle a particular problem. And, you know, they didn't have a point of view. And so coming in with a strong point of view that you can support with sort of thinking and insights, whether I agree or whoever you're meeting agrees with the point of view, I think coming in with a strong point of view that's thoughtful and reflective is a great way to, you know, you know, to think about how you're navigating if you want to go client, client side, because ultimately, you know, when you're marketing, you're still in the selling your ideas game. Cool. Most inspiring thing you've seen, heard, read in the last six oh, months? God, Ed. Um, <laughs> most inspiring thing I've could be anything. seen. Could be a movie. Could be like something, a video. It could be anything. Um, could be nothing. 
Yeah, I, I will say the most inspiring thing. My um, eight, so I have three boys, as you know. I have uh, an eighteen, a fifteen, and a six-year-old. So my eighteen-year-old um, went to university this year for the first time. He dropped out. He decided he wanted to be a writer and travel the world, uh, travel the world, and then be a writer. Um, and you know, he was really true to himself in making that decision. I took off to Europe when I was 18 as well. So I was very supportive of the idea, but he, um, when he left and on that journey, I guess about a month and a half ago, I handed him a book that my dad had given me when I was 18 and I moved to Europe. So the most inspiring thing was seeing my son make that decision for himself. Um, and then remembering my dad supporting me when I made a similar decision. Very cool. I'm, I'm going to stop the, um, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's always great to see This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.